Hello and welcome to this week's BossCast in conjunction with Property Week. I'm Andrew Teacher, Managing Director for Real Estate and ESG at Montford, formerly founder at Blackstock Consulting. And it's an absolute privilege to be joined this week by James Rayner, who's Chief Executive of Grosvenor Property UK. And this week, we're going to be talking about a wide variety of things in terms of the focus on retail, the revival of the West End, Grosvenor's own focus on being much more customer-focused, its commitment to social value, and its industry-leading stance on ESG. James, fantastic to see you. Thank you very much for flying straight in from Copenhagen this morning. You're looking wonderfully bright and upbeat, and it's an absolute pleasure to have you on PropCast for the first time. Well, thank you very much for inviting me. I'm very pleased to be here, and I can assure the listeners I'm not quite as bright-eyed and bushy-tailed as you make out, but thank you. (laughs) Well, look, James, let's start with your background. I mean, we've got something in common that we've both got French wives, and that brings many upsides. And well, actually, it only brings upside. Let's be clear for the record. There is no downside in having a wife from France. But you did spend a lot of your early career in Paris. I guess you came of age really at RBS, didn't you? And then moved out to France. Tell us a bit about that early period in your career and how you came into Grosvenor originally in a European role. Yeah, sure. So I started my career at RBS as a graduate and did a variety of things as you do. And then at one stage, I got asked essentially to do a report on the European markets and what opportunities possibly existed there. And so I did that report and I sort of thought it was one of those reports that you wrote and went somewhere. And it turned out it went somewhere where decision got taken that we should go into France. And I think through the fact that I was probably the only person in the company then that spoke any French, I was asked to go out and lead the activity there, which I did. It was about sort of 98, 99. And what was that in? Was that commercial, resi? Bit of so a- that was really in real estate lending, structured finance. Yeah. So we went and set up a team there, and I was there from that period until 2004. It was a very successful period. At that point, it was for a variety of reasons, I was ready to leave the bank, move on. And I knew the Grosvenor team. And I knew that they had a small Paris office then at the time, I don't know, maybe 15 people or something. Yeah, yeah. And they were looking to expand the team. And we talked about it. And I thought that was an interesting opportunity. And I took it. I stayed with them in Paris, based in Paris 2012, when I moved back to London where I was involved probably much more internationally than I was domestically. So when dealing with some of our stuff in Asia, as well as in the US and around Europe, it was an incredibly formative period for me, both personally and professionally. You know, I think it's often good to go somewhere where you are a almost a fish out of water and you've got to find your own way, create your network, learn from you know, a very low knowledge base and work pretty hard, you know. And was that in your DNA from when you were a youngster growing up in different parts of the world? Have you always been comfortable in that sort of environment? Yeah, so my parents were expatriates from the time that I was born. So they've always lived abroad. And so therefore I was, I suppose, comfortable being in places that were not the UK. So it wasn't a sort of a worry to me. But, you know, I didn't have any particular background in France, per se. I'd spent a little bit of time at university there. You know, I like turning pages, yeah, and I like new things. I'm not somebody that is worried about change. 
I like it. And in terms of Grosvenor, obviously it remains one of the preeminent global brands in real estate, a tremendous history going back over 300 years. Do you see your job as the UK boss as being about preservation or is it about change? Because some would see you, I suppose, as quite a big risk-averse entity that's there to protect wealth rather than move forward and move fast and break things, I suppose, to use tech parlance. What's the real balance of where you see your role in the business? Well, I try not to break things, but um, (laughs) I absolutely do not identify with the idea that I'm here to preserve. You know, I think I'm incredibly conscious of the heritage and the standards and the qualities and the values of the business. But I think that the world is constantly moving forward. And I think it's moving forward in much shorter cycles than it has before. And, you know, we are a very long term company, but I do not confuse that with being a slow moving company. And we are about, I think, taking advantage of that long term patience in a way to do in the short term things that are very innovative and to challenge ourselves to take risk you know but when I say take risk I'm not naturally a risk averse person but I'm very risk averse to risks that I don't understand so for me it's about making sure that we're a business that is open that is outward facing that is understanding to the best of its ability, the markets that we are operating in, the various change factors that could come towards us. And in a way, working out what our position is on them and taking advantage of it. I mean, when we talked earlier, we talked a little bit about how markets can value risk in a certain way. Yeah. And If we look at that risk and we value it in a different way because we have hopefully better knowledge or different knowledge or a different perspective, then there is a position for arbitrage. And then it's about us working out how we make sure we're on the right side of that arbitrage. Mm. And that's been one of the things that I've always observed in the 18 years I've worked in this sector. And actually, on many levels, some of the opaqueness that exists around data and information is companies' main weapon. It's their main purpose and their main value is that they know more than the counterparty. And clearly, with your business and the footprint that you have, particularly around Mayfair and Belgravia, that obviously gives you a very deep well of data and information that you can use. I mean, in terms of your point on managing risk and being open, I'm interested in some of the cultural shifts that you've made internally, because Grosvenor, in spite of its track record and age and position in the market, you have been extremely progressive, certainly in promoting diversity within the team and the business. And I know you personally are very active in empowering people and enabling that decision-making to flow through the business. Can you talk a bit about that and what some of the lessons are that other people in different executive roles could learn from some of your experiences and some of the challenges you've had? Let me try and address this in a couple of ways. So, you know, if you think about a real estate business, there are two aspects to it. And there's one aspect that I think gets a lot more prominence than the other. So one aspect is the buildings, and then the other aspect is the people. I think to a lot of the external 
world, people will assume that, and I'll use a term that I almost ban the use of internally, which is the landlord. They assume the landlord is probably one person just collecting rent. They don't realize yeah. these are large organizations that employ a lot of people who do a lot of different things, often very highly varied, highly skilled things. So when I looked at it, I said, well, we're quite fortunate with the assets that we have and we own and the assets that we could develop and invest in, and et cetera. What's really important here is that we are a place that attracts incredibly high talent. And I think that's even more pertinent today than sort of three and a half years ago when I took over this role, in the sense that the markets don't seem to me to be playing in our favor. And I can see that we're going to have a fairly tough environment over the next few years. And in that particular circumstance, even more so than normal, it is key that you have your best players on the pitch. Yeah. And that is the way that you're going to add value. It's through having really smart people enabled to do smart things in a thoughtful way. So, you know, I am very much about hoping to create the best possible team around me. And, you know, my kind of mantra is I want to hire people who are better than me at what they do. And I think both from their perspective and my perspective, I've been fairly successful at that. And then you're thinking, well, what are the things that attract people to a business? You know, what do people want? And I think that people want a very supportive environment. And I think that's very core to our DNA, given sort of almost family ownership and so on. That's mm. a, it's a very supportive environment. But you want an environment that frees people up to do things, that reduces bureaucracy where it can. And that, the word that I use a lot is that, you know, we have an attitude of playing to win. And that means allowing people to make mistakes and learn and move forward, rather than trying to, through an enormous raft of process and procedures mitigate every single possible thing that could happen and therefore not doing anything and that's the preservation bit in a way whereas i'm very much like how do we evolve this the estate has evolved over 350 years enormously from the basic thing of let's say muse houses were stables now they're very nice places for people to live etc etc and we continue via development and placemaking and public realm and marketing and so on to make this an open, vibrant and progressive place mm. as a location. And that's what I would like as a company as well. And that operational platform that you've built, my words, not yours, is central to that. And it's something I think the wider industry is now starting to recognise the fact that operational real estate and real estate are the same thing. And that unless you've got that operational platform, unless you've got that operational talent, your real estate is not going to achieve or perform as it needs to. And that is something that you as a business have long recognised, and that speaks to many of the things that you have done and that you're doing. Just before I move on, I want to talk about the growth in the square redevelopment, because that's, it's really cool. <laughs> and what you're doing there around commitments to biodiversity net gain, I think are a big, big win for the West End and something that I know you have invested a lot in and something that I know the industry can learn a lot from. Just before we go on to that, James, what's been the best mistake you've made in your career? What's the mistake you've made that you thought was world-ending at the time, but which, upon reflection, you've learned a lot from? Well, that's a very good question. Um, I might 
reflect on that and come back to it when I've narrowed the field down. Um, so I'll come back to that in a second because there's a few things. All right, well, I'm going to make a note. I'll tell you what I will say, actually. Most of the mistakes that I've made have probably got a common theme, and I think that this is a learning, is that often when you have to make a hard decision, be that to exit out of a project, to change a team, to do something like that. The easiest thing to do, even though you know you should do it, is not to do it and delay it. And every time I have done that, I've regretted it. So I have learned from that in terms of once you know what the decision is, take it. Rip the plaster off. Yeah. Well, let's talk about Grosvenor Square. Now, biodiversity net gain is a bit of a scary phrase for many people. Mm -hmm. It makes people think about cost. It makes people think about loads of technical work that they possibly don't understand or have the capabilities for. But it's something Grosvenor's really embraced. Mm -hmm. What was the thinking there? And maybe give us a bit of background for people that aren't familiar with the plans, what you're looking to achieve and what you've designed. To start off with, you know, Grosvenor Square is one of the largest open squares in the West End, probably even in London. And if you go there, its main purpose at the moment, as far as I can see, is to find a way to walk across it quite quickly. Yeah? So it is not in itself a destination. It is not in itself an amenity that serves the community around it particularly well. It's a little bit sterile. I mean, it's quite nice in the summer to be in there, but it doesn't really offer anything particularly interesting. I mean, there are some historical monuments, obviously, but in itself, how many people are going to say, you know what, you know, what are we doing on Saturday? Let's go to Grosvenor Square. I think the number of those people are probably fairly limited, you know? So we thought, well, look, there is just something here where we could create something that in itself, in terms of within the West End, becomes almost a, you know, a cultural destination or a leisure destination where people would be interested to go there and not just walk through it, but stay there, enjoy it. And indeed, given some of the plans we have, learn about nature, the environment, biodiversity. So the thinking, which to be fair, started before me, was around creating that sort of place through really massively increasing and changing the biodiversity, not just having a series of London plane trees that go around the edge and an empty middle, but creating a much more mixed environment, creating sort of an educational centre there, mm. creating ability to provide shade, light, a far more interesting landscape. So that has been the aim. It's an enormous project in itself. I mean, it's probably about a 25 million pound project to do that the team spent huge amounts of time taking it through planning bringing the community along and making them understand what an asset this could be and that's no mean feat in, in this no. part of town no no it's not but i feel <laughs> and it was westminster themselves who said this so i i'm not sort of blowing my own trumpet that it was an exemplary stakeholder management you know the team who are involved in that 
took that incredibly seriously. We're super diligent. We spent huge amounts of time getting input from the Mayfair Youth Forum to the local councillors, to the local residents, to people who worked in the area. And bringing people along that journey with us, I think, was mm. very important to its success. It's and Kate uh, Nottage and your team and others. That... Yeah, Kate and Nicola Rochefort, yeah, they were at, at yeah, the forefront done, of they've that. They've done a great job on it. Yeah, absolutely fantastic, yeah. So I think it's really exciting. And what's also exciting is we've been speaking with a number of key stakeholders around this to be part of the project with us. So it's not... Because there are other owners. You don't own all of the adjoining adjacent buildings. Well, no, exactly. There's a lot of mixed ownership around and there's also a lot of, you know, big hotel groups and so on who will equally benefit and therefore we want them to be part of this and work with us to... Well, that's quite a bold move, isn't it, of actually saying, look, you know what? We don't care if other people are going to free ride on this because that's the role that we have. Yeah, I mean, I'm hopeful that there will be uh, clear benefits for us as well in terms of the general improvement on the location and the rising tide lifts ships, yeah? Absolutely. But where it sort of fits in is I think also, I think we're very clear that a core part of our purpose is around environmental leadership. You know, the built environment not particularly just the ownership of the built environment, but the use of the built environment or getting better at that is a key part of tackling climate change and our carbon footprint. So, you know, we went out and made a very clear commitment and we've signed up to the Science-Based Targets Initiative to validate what our plan is for... And you were the first company of any note to actually set out a 2030 net zero pathway. And I remember when I joined the BPF in 2006, it was Grosvenor, Land Securities, as it was then known, Hammerson. They were the three companies that led the thinking. And I remember some internal challenges at the time at the industry. And you, as a business, have always been a North Star in this regard. How much of a challenge is that now as we hit a down cycle and costs obviously inflating construction costs are obviously going through the roof and you've committed to around a 90 million pound refurbishment program haven't you james across the estate how are you able to maintain that commitment and what are the questions that you get asked around the costs of it very good question so by and large i just don't view this as a cost i view it as a value driver stepping back why would we do this Well, the first is, I think that we have a global challenge that will be disastrous for, you know, essentially the world. And if you can do something about that, why wouldn't you? Yeah, so I think there's a moral obligation of companies and indeed of people to help tackle this issue. But the challenge that we face globally is poorer today, hotter tomorrow. (laughs) Yes. So... My second, if I'm being a bit tabloid. No, no, no. I mean, I, I get it. I do get it. But I think that we need to make ourselves less hot tomorrow. And dealing with carbon is a key part of that. So that is something that we can do something about. Now, on our own, we can do you know a fraction. But I think if we can lead the way, help demonstrate that it's possible, show real leadership around this issue and help other people understand the issue, then we will create more momentum. 
And I think that's really what this is about. It's just creating as much momentum of moving in the right direction as possible because then things will happen. So what I think as well is that where I say it's a sort of a value driver, when we started off thinking about this, we realized that in many ways it's difficult to, in this sort of highly financial world, pinpoint, well, is it going to get you 1% more growth or no growth? Or, you know, you can't financially, or we couldn't at the time, financially forecast that precisely. So we looked at what we felt was the cost of the retrofit across the London estates to improve its quality and its standards. And we came to about 90 million pounds. And so what we did is we ran that number as a cost through the strat plan. And we looked at its impact and we decided whether that we found that financially that was an acceptable impact. And luckily we're a large enough scale that it was acceptable. So we said, okay, so on that basis we can do it. But knowing that our fundamental belief was that it would create value, we just weren't able at the time to quantify that. Now, I think that what we're seeing is the industry, the proof points are now coming. If you start to look at what are the things that are leasing well, now, there's a whole bunch of factors that create whatever we want to call it, grade A or super prime or whatever. Yeah, being next to Oxford Circus certainly helps. Absolutely. So there's the locational factor, there's the physical part of the property. But the environmental credentials are key. And occupiers, more and more, are signing up to science-based targets initiatives. So they're going to ask themselves, well, what can I do about it? And one of the things that they can do about it, and many you know, service-based companies, there are not a million things that they can do about it in terms of changing their own profiles, but one of them is around the choice of the buildings they occupy. Mm. So actually, if you end up with a situation, which is where we are now, where there is greater demand for those buildings than there is supply, then it becomes more financially viable as well. And I think that we have delivered a lot of developments over the last couple of years, which have all leased very well. And I think in part because of this. I also think that we have a bit of an issue in the industry, which is we think of it as a cost. But it's only a cost in the sense that it hasn't been properly reflected in valuations yet. This comes up a lot on this podcast, but I think the valuation regime itself has got some pretty big challenges and part of the problem is it is perpetually backwards looking so you're never going to be able to ask it what's this going to look like in five years if it's not able to look forward or have a view or have the expertise to have a view i agree with that and that's a fundamental issue because what you should really be doing in reality is looking at what is the cost to a particular building to get it to whichever standard you're following in five years' time. And that should be reflected in the valuation. And I don't think that it properly is at the moment. So in a way, our retrofit fund, holding it on a cost basis, is essentially doing that for us as a portfolio. Yeah. Microsoft obviously is a pretty big occupier of buildings of all sorts and shapes, Apple as well. And a lot of those companies have said we're going to be not just net zero, but we're going to be carbon negative by 2030. So a company like Microsoft has said that, and they're not going to achieve that by occupying newly built real estate. And that obviously plays to your strengths. But obviously you accept that there are certain 
benefits you have of owning large swathes of Belgravia and Mayfair that are slightly different, let's just say, from many other parts of the UK. What would you suggest government can do, or maybe it isn't a government intervention, maybe they should just do nothing, but what interventions could help with other ownership across the UK where we have pieces of land, high streets that aren't in single ownership, where people are holding brown assets that are going to be in need of a significant amount of capex over the next cycle? Well, there are probably a few things. The first is, I think, probably more broad around the environment would be, it seems to me there is much more of a stick approach than a carrot approach. You know, if you don't have a building of this quality at that point, you can't lease it fine well that's a big stick yeah but you know you could create quite a large swathe of the economy around a green economy if you are providing more incentives to do things because then people would not struggle with this is just a cost maybe i should do nothing and hand the problem to somebody else yeah and you'd be creating real skill set in an area that is crucial to the country so I don't see many simple motivators to do this on the positive side. And they're all, for me, on the negative side. Where, so, so we could be doing that through the planning system, through the tax system, almost as we've done with EVs, right? For we've sure. Given Absolutely. And huge I, tax handouts on electric vehicles. So why aren't they doing that is a question for me for the real estate sector when they know that it needs to be tackled. And, you know, in itself would, even if you gave tax incentives to encourage people to invest in it, those would come back because those incentives are going to hiring people, to paying, you know, wages and doing other things that are very positive for the country. So it's setting out that orbit of green jobs and new skills that could be created. Having a really clear framework in this area is something that I feel is missing. Secondarily, and you touched on it, is, you know, how do you prioritize planning applications where one of the core purposes of it is to improve the environmental performance of a building? How do you fast track it? We have a finite amount of time to make a lot of changes. You don't really want sort of 18 months of that time being soaked up by passing papers backwards and forwards between a variety of agencies. Mm, It's largely because somebody doesn't like the window frames you've chosen. Well, exactly. Let's continue, James, with this theme of resilience. I think it's a really interesting theme and I think it's something that people are really interested in. Obviously, the other big area of change right now is technology. Mm -hmm. Now, luckily, I haven't yet been replaced by AI, but it's only a matter of time. To what degree are you looking at, I mean, not just AI, obviously, there's an element to which everyone's quite excited and fearful in equal measure of this, but more broadly, how is Grosvenor recognising change, investing to improve its systems and how you deliver value, really, by thinking about technology and embracing it? So broadly as an industry, I would say we've never really been at the forefront of thinking around technology, services, data, these sorts of things. So I think, you know, we are definitely in a could-do-better camp there. So what are we doing? Well, there are several different things. The first is, at a more sort of simple level, I don't feel that our own data is good enough. And that can be from the most 
basic levels to do we genuinely understand the ebbs and flows of footfall, where people come in from, why they're coming, who they are, that sort of thing. And that sort of information is hugely important, certainly on the retail curation side of ensuring that the things match up. We just don't have that. There's all other aspects. I've looked at it, and I think you alluded to it before, which was given the contiguous ownership we have, we should know absolutely a lot more than anybody else about exactly what's going on. And I think that we probably know more, but do we know a lot more? Is the gap as big as it should be? I'm not so sure. So we have, a, and we've been running for this year, it'll be a year-long kind of data project about generally asking people, what are the things that if you knew this, your job would be easier and you could make better decisions. So there's a huge amount of energy going into that. And that will be hopefully embracing better systems, internal systems and technology to then enable the analysis of that data. So that's sort of one thing. The other is, I think, and this sort of started at the same time as our drive around sustainability, was our sustainability team is actually called the Sustainability and Innovation Team because we felt that the move towards sustainability was also about us embracing innovation and trying new things, because we were never going to be able to solve all of the issues with the tools that we currently had, so we had to find other things to do. Mm. And it was also part of this cultural change that we've you know, alluded to about changing the way that the business thought about how you needed to act within the real estate sphere. And as part of that, we created a few different investment strategies, small, but nonetheless different. One was what we call the Tenant Investment Fund. So this was a small platform that enabled us to invest in our tenants if they needed capital to support growth. And you know we've probably made six or seven of those investments. And that in itself has given us a much greater insight into how those types of businesses operate, what their stress points are, what things work for them and what don't work for them. So essentially a VC fund. Yeah, a little bit. Definitely a VC fund, but one with a view that, given we're the owner as well, that there's an alignment and a partnership aspect there. And yeah. I'm very keen, and maybe touch on this later, about this thinking around the property owner being a partner to the occupier. And then we also invested, we had a strategy around what we call the alternative investments. And this was the idea that when we came across good small technology companies that could do things that would be of benefit to our business, maybe we should also be investing in them to help their growth, because if they were good for us... Well, it comes back to yeah. that position of prominence that you yeah. have, as being Grosvenor comes with a lot of responsibility. Yeah. So, you know, we've made a few investments, and they're all really around the technology, and equally, in some cases, the environment too. We've made one recently in sort of waste management systems. We've made one into a company called Demand Logic, which is really about very highly sophisticated building management systems. So you essentially can look at how you can massively reduce the energy consumption of a building through better understanding of exactly what's going on in the building. And it's computation on simple things that, I mean, it's not just about turning the heat down at night, but understanding that if you've got two rooms next to each other, there's going to be a certain amount of heat. That will there's all sorts of things like that. And it, it's, it's way more sophisticated than I could explain in a simple way or maybe even in a complicated way. But what I'm looking at is the proof points of where we've installed this into our buildings 
it has made a huge amount of difference and a huge amount of savings already. So, you know, mm-hmm. that for me is great. We've invested in a company called Stack, which is all around sort of digital measurement of your building footprint. You know, I mean, we've got a very historic estate and sometimes, you know, you're pulling out the floor plans and they were written with a quill and ink, you know. So, you know, it's actually genuinely understanding the portfolio and it's, you know, all of that sort of stuff. I mean, there are some surveyors that probably still use quills and ink. Well, actually, but. Yeah, probably some, maybe, <laughs> maybe some of them are here. I don't know, but I don't think so anymore. But so there's a whole bunch of things that we do and they are around, you know, just generally improving ourselves, but hopefully also improving our ability to make quicker, better informed decisions, mm. which makes us a better partner or better part of a supply chain. Because I think, as I said, you know, cycles are getting quicker. You need to make decisions more quickly. To make decisions more quickly, you need to be better informed or you are inherently just taking more risk. That's a good point. I mean, just leading on from your point on footfall data, obviously, to some degree at the mercy of what happens around you in the West End. And it's been a pretty volatile period for the West End, largely because of its reliance on fast fashion. And we've obviously seen a number of failures and that's been well documented but i'm interested in your views firstly on the wider west end and clearly you've got some great neighbors you've got some very well oiled machines around you with other great estates and other owners who essentially operate in a very similar way how do you align with them and then let's talk about the elephant in the room, James. And I think everyone listening to this knows the elephant in the room is Oxford Street. So you're right. I think we've got some very good neighbours, and that's part of building a good, broader neighbourhood. Howard Walden, Portman. Yeah, Portman, the Shaftesbury Capital, the Crown. Soho Estates. And people who do, by their nature, think longer term. Now, if I look at the West End, and I believe it's very much the most successful part of London you know I think that we should maybe occasionally step back and think well maybe that has something to do with the fact that it has responsible property owners who think for the longer term and think about the curation of place and the creation of great place so I think that we're fortunate in that sense in that people are trying to do the very best they can and act responsibly and act in a conscious way and by that I mean that they're aware of their situation as part of a broader community. So I think a real positive for the West End is that type of ownership. They're also, hopefully similar to us, quite forward-thinking companies in always thinking about sort of highest and best use for buildings and how we realise that this can't be a static part of the world. We don't want it to be a museum. You know, we want it to evolve and be fit for purpose, not just for now, but for several generations to come. So it's that sort of thoughtful evolution of place that I think is ingrained in certainly in us and I think in many others as well. With regards to the elephant, yeah. So this is an interesting one, isn't it? Because I do think that here you see what happens when you don't have a lot of contiguous ownership and you have a lot of people who are doing a series of transactions that are individually the best thing, but maybe not on a collective basis. Mm. You had a street that was very exposed to a part of the market that is volatile and has suffered. And as a result, you had vacancy. And because of the very high costs of having an empty building, that's a whole other podcast, you encouraged it to be filled and not necessarily with the people that you would, or companies or types of occupier that you would want to fill it. So 
you know, it's gone through a pretty poor phase, Oxford Street. Now, there are several things that I think, if we want to be a bit more optimistic, we can talk about. The first is I think that the Elizabeth Line, Crossrail, it's a game changer for many parts of London. It is certainly a massive positive for Oxford Street, given the stations it's got halfway along and at one end. And I think that in itself is a little bit of a catalyst for people to be more positive about investing. Now, then there's the general improvement of the public realm of Oxford Street, where, you know, this has been a long-running saga, but I think that we're getting to a position and there are bids like the New West End Company who've been incredibly active in that, and we help them as much as we can. Uh, And they're working with Westminster Council to... Mm have a scheme that will improve the general physical appearance of the streets, will reduce, I think, traffic, make the pedestrian experience more pleasant. Now, to my mind, in my sort of pipe dream, maybe, would be I would have preferred it to have been maybe more radical. I mean, I'd love the thought of a wholly pedestrianised Oxford Street, you know, a great green street in the middle of a global green city I think is quite a nice thing to aspire to and I think could have been fantastic now we're not green last ramblas yeah well there you go exactly and I think there's our headline there you go I think (laughs) we're not there but I think what is going to happen will have an improvement and I suppose talk of CPOs and all of that sort of stuff is really nonsense, isn't it? Yeah, I don't think so. I mean, I think that this is about trying to find the public sector and the private sector to collaborate on making improvements to essentially the visitor experience. Mm. So, look, we talked a lot about London. You obviously have a huge footprint in Liverpool. Yeah. And you're present in, is it 47 cities, something like that? Well, around the world, yes. I mean, I think through our indirect business that we have and then through the North American operating business, we have quite a lot of exposure. I never know exactly how many cities in total is, but it might be 47. In the UK, we obviously have Liverpool One, which is... You know, essentially 42 acres of the pedestrianised centre of Liverpool, which is operationally performing really well, very exciting assets. It's obviously gone through Eurovision, which was a very exciting few weeks as well. But we've started to invest equally in Manchester, in Bristol, in Birmingham and in Leeds as well. And what's the attraction in those cities? We had Tom Reardon on recently. He's the boss of Leeds City Council. One of the most fun podcasts we've done in recent years, actually. I'd encourage you to have a listen to Tom Reardon if you've not heard that one. But for you, given your focus and your heritage, what is the attraction that you have to some of those core cities? And what are you looking at doing? I think they have, those cities, some things that are similar drivers of success as London, for example. I'm a very big believer in, you know, what is the power of education within a city? particularly higher education. And if you look at those four cities particularly, and you look at London as well, really strong universities that are growing in population. And they've got brain gain now, right? So massive brain brain gain. So that's clear. You equally have had a situation where over the last 10 years or so, there's been the creation of a lot of housing, residential, in the centre of those cities, which I think has encouraged a lot more students than previously to stay within the city 
after they've qualified rather yeah. than going out. So the employment base of those cities is evolving at a very rapid pace. So that's sort of a more macro picture. As a result, I think there's been a lot of job creation. On a percentage basis, more job creation in those cities than in London over the last 10 years or so. And so when we've looked at it, we've said, well, actually, ignoring any badging of leveling up, these cities are evolving. They're quite young cities. They're also, which is, I think, germane to the economic position we're in now, they're affordable cities. They are places where you can rent centrally, you can buy centrally. You know, the differential between house price and wages is far lower than in London, yeah? So I think there will be people who are attracted to moving to them. Hmm. So we've got employment growth, educated workforce. These are good things, yeah? So when we were looking at the... Great strat- pubs, lots of football and well, lots of music venues as well. All of these things. And, you know, they are in themselves big cities which have great cultural aspects to them that are a lot of fun to be in yeah i mean all of those things so when we looked at our strategy uh, a few years ago one of the things we wanted to do was have a part of our capital allocation that was focused on slightly higher yielding investments than we could get on the London estate, given the prime nature of what we What is that difference in yield? Now, if if London typically is, what, a three and a half, four, I'm talking historic terms, obviously it's going to have moved now with the risk-free rate shooting up, but what's the differential you need between London and the regions? Well, I mean, that differential is going through a volatile period right now, but I would have thought that the historic differential between, you know... It was about 200 bips, wasn't it? was probably more around 150, 175. At the moment, it's probably around 250. So for us, that's interesting in terms of that spread versus the historical. But the spread in itself is interesting. And then you've got to say, well, normally when you say there's higher yield, it's because there's higher risk. So when we looked at that, that's around, okay, how comfortable are we with the cash flows there? Perhaps the values will be more volatile, but what are the cash flows going to look like? And when the cash flows for us might be more resilient because actually wage as a proportion of housing or housing as a proportion of wages is lower. And so because we see that strong employment story, and also I don't think there's been a tremendous amount of development there. So you have vacancy Especially that's Bristol. relatively low. Yeah. yeah. So we felt very comfortable around our cash flow risk. So for us, that's been the driver of the investment. And, you know, it's also around where can we transport our skills? So, you know, we have good development skills. We've got a lot of knowledge around sustainability. So if we can buy buildings where there's a value-add aspect to them, particularly around improving the environmental credentials of a building, then that's very appealing to us. And we now have half a million square feet of office property around the regions, and we're not leaping feet first into the market right now because I think there's quite a bit of price discovery to go through, Mm. but the appetite remains. And I think that's the thing people forget, that offices aren't dead in the water, that people still want workplaces and that actually we talk a lot about the K-shaped recovery and on the upper ling of the K and the bit that's pointing up what is going to be those best-in-class sites of which demand still exists. And I think you know, law firms, advisory firms have done a great job of basing themselves in Birmingham, sending all of their staff on the train down to London and charging London rates for a well, Birmingham-based well, lawyers. Smart business, that, isn't yeah. it? I, mean, I agree with you, though. There's definitely a bifurcation in the market between high-quality and middle-low-quality. 
And you see that in leasing, you see that in an investment appetite. Mm. And therefore, you know, I would say that having a very good look at your portfolio and understanding how you're going to get things from being middle grade to high grade is where people should be spending their mm. time. And as you say, Resi is a big, big part of those growth stories. And anybody wanting to know a bit more about that should get themselves a ticket for the Resi 360 conference, which takes place in London between the 12th and 13th of September. And you can go to resiconf.com, that's resi and then conf.com for tickets. James, I want to come back to something you were talking about a little bit before in terms of partnership and your desire to bin the word landlord and scrub it out of history because of all the connotations that come with it. And you as a business have certainly pioneered that thinking and the parlance of customer over occupier. And obviously through the pandemic and everything that's followed, there is a much greater focus on that. Lease lengths are going down. There's a much greater focus on income values and yields are obviously all over the place given everything so two questions how are you approaching partnership with occupiers and i want to come back to this question on where you see valuations landing in terms of risk-free rate going up what does an adequate amount of risk need to return in the current environment it's very two separate questions but i think they're connected in a way because that approach to partnership drives value creation yeah partially the approach to partnership is around you know i think an attitude of recognizing that we sell a product and that product is space by and large. And what we're trying to do is how do we add value to that space by making sure that it's the right space, the places around it enhance it, and that potentially we can offer other services to people that are valuable. So if you think of it as a product, well, you know, if you're selling a product, you're selling it to a customer. So we need to understand them better. And so, you know, we spend a lot of time trying to get close to them, understand their business plans, understand how we can help, what are other things that we can do. Because fundamentally, and we can come back to COVID in a second, if our occupiers, our customers, our partners are unsuccessful, we will not be successful. And, you know, we need to think about that. You know, we can't just provide them with anything they need to be provided with something that works for whatever their business be or whatever their use of that property is and then we also need to constantly think about that property and what is its genuine purpose should it actually be a residential building instead of an office building or what have you where i think about it in terms of partnership is around that alignment you know I think historically you would say landlords and tenants did not meet very frequently One's aim was to get as much rent. One's aim was to pay as less rent. And I think that what we are looking to do is to work in a more open way with them so that they understand our business, we understand their business, and we understand what are the value drivers of both. And we get to a position where what is happening is fair for both parties, yeah? And also understanding that the value of being a good partner is alignment through good times and bad times. And I would say that when we went through COVID and the various lockdowns, that was mm. a pretty bad time for everybody. And whilst the press would mainly be talking about it being a bad time for occupiers, it was also a bad time for the owners of property. That didn't and cut through so much, did it? No, not really, no. Partially because I think of that 
image of landlord, yeah? Whereas I think in reality, the industry, I know we did, but I know the broader industry did as well, I think acted incredibly well in terms of trying to support their occupier base through a time where they were struggling so that in the end, when they came out of it, they still had a viable business that they could grow from. Now, obviously, the quid pro quo you want is when they then come out of that period having enjoyed your support and become incredibly successful. That good fortune reflects also on the support that you've given. Mm. doesn't always work like that. No, of course not, and it won't. But it's also an understanding that that's how maybe things could be. And... The needs of occupiers are changing. We've talked about the fact that generally lease lengths are coming down. People want more flexibility. People want more service. So we're trying to embrace that. I think that we believe that flexible service officers have a genuine part to play within the sector. We are achieving, but we are also looking to increase our allocation of how much of our office space is occupied in that way, probably up to 15 or 20% of the space. And we're opening up new buildings all the time, which are for the purpose of service and flex offices. It's thinking a lot more operationally. It's thinking about providing people what they want. You know, I think in the fullness of time, we'll start to think about, well, what do service departments look like? And is that um, area we should go into? Where you're providing not just a building, but a whole wraparound kind of lifestyle for people. Which plays to the Monday to Friday crowd, or Tuesday to Thursday, if you will. I think so. I'm conscious of time, James. There's a couple more questions I want to ask you. How much of a taboo is it now to wave the flag for London? I don't find it a taboo at all. Maybe it is. I just haven't heard the news. But, you know, for me... But levelling up, I suppose the point is that over the last years, politically, the game has moved out of London and almost saying we need more support for London falls on deaf ears. Yeah. I don't see that there needs to be... For there to be a winner, there has to be a loser. I just don't see that as a sensible way of looking at it. I think that London is a great global city. It's in reality, in my mind, the only really global city in Europe. It's lucky. It has language and time zone, which work in its favor. But it also is a massive employer. It's a massive creator of value. It has a huge educational and cultural center. So it's an amazing city. And London's prosperity is important because it improves the UK's prosperity. London isn't competing, in my mind, with Birmingham or Manchester or Bristol at all. It's competing for international global capital versus New York or Tokyo or Los Angeles or Paris, perhaps. You know, mm. That's what it's doing. It's bringing in greater investment into the UK, which can then grow the broader UK economy, which should benefit and will benefit and has benefited other parts of the UK. So I don't see it as, you know, an either or. I think, you know, the West End alone is probably 10% of the UK's GDP. I mean, play carefully with that. It's good advice. And final question, really. Social value is a big element of what you do. And I think whilst the industry at large is very much focused on the E of ESG, you seem to have accepted the point that, you're not going to be able to move the dial on environmental change if you don't take society with you. What are some of the elements of that that are most important to you personally? I think that we are, and I certainly am, very conscious that we are part of a community. So, you know, I think a lot about making sure 
that our actions contribute to the community's broader success. And so, you know, we can't think of a project just in isolation, but we think of it as, will this create, you know, more local prosperity? Will this increase the biodiversity of the community? Am I creating jobs? You know, what is the benefit of what we're doing? Mm. You know, what does the community need? And we do this in Liverpool as well as in London and so on, which is to really try and match particularly on the retail and, you know, hospitality side, I suppose, which is the much more visible side of the portfolio. Yeah, yeah. You know, how do we evolve them so that they provide to the community as well as to us? You know, we don't see this as a kind of a zero-sum game. Now, measuring social success, I suppose, or social impact is far trickier. But we've spent quite a lot of time, including with external people, really trying to much better understand what are the really strong things about the community and what are the needs of the community. And so we're earlier on that journey than we are probably on the environmental journey. Mm. But it is now very much yeah. part of our people-positive approach to things. And I know you're very passionate within the business as well, you know, in supporting not just gender diversity, but non-visible disability. And these are things that you have all sorts of... Yeah, and I think, you know, a lot of these things is also... It comes from what you're also trying to be as a company. You know, and I think that we take diversity inclusion incredibly seriously because we see the benefit of diverse thought, of diverse background, of different approaches, different thinking. And, you know, we want to be, in a way, the strongest team, and the strongest team needs a whole raft of different skills and approaches. We also, I think, want to encourage anybody who wants to have a successful career within this industry to think from the earliest age that that is possible and that they can succeed. And so as a result, you know, we have a series of culture networks internally, which are around, you know, so obviously LGBT, but also faith equally onto race and equally onto disability. And, you know, I want to think that when I leave this industry, hopefully in quite a long time, there will be a really strong progress made on all of those areas in terms of people who now think this is an industry I want to be part of, not only because I can have a fulfilling career, I can have a career that has real impact on society, and it's a responsible place to work, and it's also a place that's a lot of fun. Mm. No, it's a good way to leave it. One final question. So you can subscribe to this podcast on Apple Amazon, Spotify. James Rayner, what's on your playlist at the minute or your record player? What are you <laughs> dancing around the room to at home in a minute? Well, to be honest, I'm going a bit retro at the moment. So in a few weeks, I will hit my 50th birthday, which obviously looking at me is a surprise. I was going to say, yeah, to yeah. say you're a day over 27 For would sure, be yeah. a shock to most So people. I am very focused on the music of 1973 right now. <laughs> Which Pink Floyd record is that? Um, so it's uh, Frank Zappa as well. So I've got a bit of Frank Zappa, and actually what I have been listening to on the way in was Steeler's Wheel. Oh, that's a bit niche. Yeah. I'm certainly working through Frank Zappa at the bit. That's on my to-do list for the next 12 months is get my head around all of that 70s stuff. Well, look, It's great. Absolute pleasure to have you on, James. Thank you for being such a great guest and for talking really honestly about everything. It's really refreshing and wish you the very best of luck with everything you're doing here and hopefully come back and speak to you 
to you in a year or so and find out how everything is going. Well, look, it's been an absolute pleasure to chat to James Rayner, boss of Grosvenor UK. So this has been Andrew Teacher from Montford, podcast in conjunction with Property Week. You can subscribe on all your favourite podcast platforms. Do get in touch, suggest any guests and give us any feedback you'd like to. And if you want to, please leave a review. Look, thanks very much for listening and we'll see you again soon.